What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? What's going on, Ethan? How are you, man? Doing well, doing well. Today, we're going to talk about how the Cavs are nearing a full-strength lineup and how the team will look when that happens. First, Chris, can you give an update on Dean Wade and when the fans might be able to expect his return? Yeah, so when it first happened with Dean, I'm told it actually happened during the Cavs' road trip. So a number of days and a number of games before he was actually shut down, he was just gutting through it. He was just battling through it. And then it became more problematic in the game against the 76ers. And I saw him after that game against the 76ers. And that was obviously before Thanksgiving. It was before the Miami game that he missed. It was before the Lakers game that he missed too. And after that game against the 76ers, he was kind of hobbling around the locker room. He limped out of the locker room and toward the team bus. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Obviously, the ankle is bothering him a little bit more than it seemed like it was during the Cavs road trip, that long West Coast road trip that they had. And then I saw him after the game against the Miami Heat, and he was walking out of the locker room and walking out of the arena in a walking boot, which some of that is precautionary, but some of that speaks to the significance of the injury. And I was told at that time by somebody very close to Dean that it was probably going to be a multi-game absence. And if he did come back, the earliest he was going to be back was for Tuesday's play-in tournament finale against Atlanta, but that wasn't guaranteed either. So I think this is something that Dean wants to be cautious with, the Cavs want to be cautious with. It's been bothering him for a little bit now, and I think everybody decided that it was best for him to get off his ankle, give it some time to rest, to recover and see if he could get it back to full strength. And I'll say this, for all of the things that you can say about Dean and some of the flaws that he has, Ethan, and you've talked about his propensity to foul, you've talked about some of the struggles that he's had on the offensive end of the floor in terms of passing up shots and not really scoring when he gets an opportunity in the starting lineup. Their defense suffers when Dean is not out there. He's a big body. He can guard multiple positions, and the first night that they didn't have him was against Miami, a night that the Cavs gave up a season high in points. And I'm not sitting here and saying, well, you know, Dean Wade didn't play that night, and because Dean wasn't out there, the Cavs gave up the most points that they've given up all season long. But I am saying that the Cavs had to use a different kind of starting lineup in the absence of Dean. They downsized. They went to Craig Porter Jr. and Darius Garland in the backcourt, and the size difference was pretty striking. And the ability for Miami to get in their offensive flow was a little bit different than what we saw when teams had to work harder and harder with Dean's size, quickness, athleticism out there on the perimeter. Two small guards in that backcourt, Darius Garland and Craig Porter Jr., it was a different look, and it got exposed a little bit. So for people that don't truly understand the impact of Dean Wade, I give you this number, okay? And this is just defensively, because I understand these guys' flaws on the offensive end of the floor. The Cavs' defensive rating... With Dean Wade on the court this year, Ethan, are you ready for this? 103, okay? Oh, wow. The Cavs' defensive rating in games when Dean Wade doesn't play or 
in instances where he's off the court. Are you ready for this? No. 114.9. That's glaring. Glaring difference on the defensive end of the floor. Look, man, he can guard multiple guys. He works hard. That game against Philadelphia, Tyrese Maxey got off to a terrible start. He finished very, very well. But I think in that game, he was 11 of 28, I want to say, from the field. So that efficiency that Tyrese Maxey has shown throughout the course of the year just was not there in a matchup against the Cavs. And Dean Wade was partly responsible for that. His size was bothering Maxey. His ability to body up and be physical on the perimeter was bothering Maxey. Shots were more contested. Passes were tougher to make. All I'm saying is just don't discount what Dean can bring on the defensive end of the floor because he's going out there putting up goose eggs on offense. There's an impact that can be made. Yeah, and as the season went on and as the season goes on, I've definitely noticed that, like especially against the Pistons when he was guarding Kate Cunningham, it was a big difference to see. I mean, Kate is a big dude. Like Having someone like Dean, who is also a larger body, being able to go out to the perimeter and guard made it difficult on Cade. He had one of his lesser scoring nights, and obviously if Cade Cunningham's not going, then that Detroit Pistons offense is really not going anywhere. So Dean Wade being able to shut him down was huge for Cavs, but <laughs> I want to get your idea of how this roster is going to look when it's healthy. So I want to know what your favorite rotation lineup outside of the desired starting lineup of Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Max Schroes, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen would be. And I know you just said this, and I know you're going to be upset with me for saying this, but as of right now, I'd plug in Craig Porter Jr. for Donovan Mitchell as the second rotation. Like, Darius Garland has stepped up huge and holds the keys to the offense, the maestro, moving the pieces, all that good stuff. And Craig is tough to guard for any opponent when he gets downhill. What I love about Craig is, like, he knows his spots, and he's able to get to them effectively by switching speeds and getting downhill and using the pick and roll to get to his little mini turnaround jumper in the post. And he also has the ability to drive and kick out to guys like Max Struess, who torch the Raptors on Sunday with 20 points in the third quarter and also he has the ability to dump off the Jared Allen and Evan Mobley or throw labs or whatever is needed for a high level offense my thing is I just love how much energy Craig is playing with like on the offensive end defensive end and he's extremely level-headed and we'll get into why I'm saying this a little bit later with how it ties into Donovan Mitchell, but I want to know what your favorite rotation lineup that you've seen so far this season is outside of the starting five. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I'll say this, Ethan, that is the one that I'm pretty intrigued by seeing more of and seeing if there's something else there. I'm curious about the Garland, Mitchell, Levert, Struess, Mobley lineup and the viability of that. Okay, that's that's a small ball lineup. Not really, though, because you've got Mobley anchoring it. So, yeah, I mean, like, technically, it's smaller than what the Cavs are used to, and it's going away from the two bigs. And that group has only played 17 minutes so far this year together. But, like, one of the things that is a concern when it comes to Mobley and Allen together at times is a lack of spacing out there. I've always wondered what it could look like with Evan at the five or Jared at the five 
surrounded by four legitimate shooters and four legitimate offensive threats. And that's one way to do it. And if Max can be as physical as he has shown early on in the season, if he can rebound the way that he has been rebounding this season, like he's got more double-doubles this year, Ethan, than he had combined in his entire career leading up to this year. So there's a different intensity to him. There's a different style to him. There's a different way that he's being asked to play here in Cleveland. And if he can hold up at the four, because he is tough and physical, and he can rebound better than I think a lot of people gave him credit for, that has the ability to be pretty intriguing at both ends of the floor now. Because Levert, on-ball defender, kind of in that Isaac Okoro mold, not the same as Isaac, but that same kind of defensive stopper. And Levert doesn't have as much offensive responsibility in that lineup because Garland, Mitchell, and Struess are all there as well. So that one intrigues me a little bit. And I'll give you another one that, again, intrigues me a little bit. Just to see the viability of this. Mobley at center again, without Allen. And Niang at the four, as opposed to Max Struess at the four. But Chris, you've been so high on Struess. I'm confused now. <laughs> no, Struess would be at the three in this lineup. Oh, okay. okay. No Darius this time. Donovan Mitchell running the point, de facto point guard. Max Struess at the three. Karis LeVert at the two. Niang at the four. Mobley at the five in this particular makeup. But I think you can kind of like mix and match. You can take LeVert out put Darius Garland in there instead. But like that combination of Evan Mobley and George Niang, again, a four that can shoot space and be a threat on the offensive end next to Evan Mobley. And is there enough on the defensive end of the floor there because it's not Mitchell and Garland together and because it's Mobley protecting Niang and maybe covering up some of his weaknesses? I wonder about the viability of that one too, especially Ethan, when you're talking about a seven-game series, in instances where Darius and Donovan aren't on the court together. I like those lineups, but for me, based on how we saw Evan match up with different fives in the beginning of the season with Jared Allen being out, I think there is a weight capacity for whoever the center is on the other side. Like, Mobley's like, what, 200 pounds? I think, like... There's a 40-pound to 50-pound weight difference between the opposing center and Evan Mobley that that could pose difficulty for him just because, I mean, he's a great defender. We know this, but you simply get thrown around at that point, and you don't want him getting into foul trouble early either trying to hold his own. But, yeah, I, I, I think those lineups are good, too, because, you like you said, you get the shooter aspect. And when George Niang is going and the shots are falling, it, it's really nice to have him and Struess on the court because you have two pure shooters who stretch the floor. And then you have lob thread of Evan Mobley with Donovan Mitchell attacking the rim. It all makes sense on paper. It just, like, how the chemistry molds together. Ethan, it's just a situation where... If you think about last year and some of their struggles, what they could do, what they couldn't do, one of the things they could not do based on their personnel, they could not do it, was play a four-shooter lineup. They couldn't afford as much to break up Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. And they didn't have somebody like Niang, somebody like Struess, that could play the small ball four and be that kind of offensive threat and give them maybe, maybe passable enough defense. So the four-shooter lineup is something that I have been intrigued by throughout the course of this early portion of the season. 
because it's just not something that they had at their disposal last year. And I'm looking to see just how viable it is when Evan and Jarrett aren't out there together. What does the defense look like? What does the offense look like? What are the other components around whoever is at the four and the five that can make it tick at both ends of the floor? And I think when you get into a seven-game series, matchup specific, game plan specific, it all depends on the style of the opposing team. It all depends on the situation of games and stuff like that. I'm not saying that you use any of these lineups for a majority of the game. But in certain situations, being able to go to something that could force the opponent to change their style to adjust to you is something that I think could benefit the Cavs greatly. Again, depending on the matchup. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back to talk about if there's reason for concern about Donovan Mitchell after his last two performances. But until then, we'll be right back. Remember to subscribe to Subtext to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I. This will give you more insight than on your everyday social media platforms. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. All right, Chris, I want to start this off by looking at some numbers. So Donovan Mitchell, over the last two games against the Raptors and the Lakers, has played 34 and a half minutes and has shot 23% from the floor. It has been jarring to see how he's performed coming off this hamstring strain. I want to know if you think there's reason for concern about Donovan Mitchell's play returning from injury? No. (laughs) There's just not going to be a lot that makes me worried about a top 15 player in the NBA. It's Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell is going to make shots. Donovan Mitchell is going to score the ball. Donovan Mitchell is going to play like an MVP candidate most nights. And the time that he doesn't, then it's just, to me, a blip. Not something alarming, not something concerning long-term. Are you concerned about it? Are you really concerned about Donovan? I'm not concerned about Donovan's scoring. I'm concerned about if the injury's still lingering for him, and he's just trying to play through it so that the team is playing at full strength. Well, in that case, if he's playing through it, it's not actually at full strength, and if that's going to hinder the offense. All right, look, like I think it's fair to say when a guy misses about a week, a little bit more than a week, It's going to take him a little bit of time to get reacclimated, shake off some of the rust, however you want to phrase it. Like, Darius Garland missed the same amount of time as Donovan Mitchell did with a hamstring strain. And Darius came back, and he got off to a slow start. He wasn't as impactful. He wasn't making his shots. He didn't have the same explosiveness. He didn't have the same blow-by ability. He might have been favoring his hamstring a little bit. 
it just like takes these guys, I think, oftentimes some time to get back in the flow and trust things a little bit and, and find their place within the offense again when they come back. And Darius came back and he got off to that slow start. And then all of a sudden he started playing better because he talked about feeling healthier and he talked about feeling like he was in a better rhythm and it wasn't stop start and all that kind of stuff. And maybe Donovan isn't 100% recovered from the hamstring injury, but he missed the same amount of time as Darius did with the same kind of injury. And I think it's good enough for him to play and be effective in his own mind. And if it was a situation, Ethan, where he wasn't able to blow by guys, he wasn't able to get to his spots, he wasn't able to be comfortable out there on the court, then that's one thing, right? If he's laboring, if he's not moving with the same force that he's used to, then you look at him and say, all right, time to shut him down for another week or something along those lines. But if he's just missing shots, if he's being guarded by quality opponents and not playing well, then that happens throughout the course of 82 games in a schedule. I think sometimes when it coincides with a guy coming back from injury, you start wondering a little bit more about that. But like, I didn't look at Donovan in the game that he played against Toronto or Donovan in the game that he played against the Lakers and say, well, he's just the exception of the end of the Lakers game when he got a cramp. And I didn't sit there and say, well, he's just not moving with the same effectiveness. He isn't as explosive. He's clearly still laboring and he needs more time to recover from the hamstring injury. I think he just played bad and I think he just missed shots. And I think that is going to correct itself quickly because Donovan Mitchell doesn't have prolonged slumps. He's too good. Yeah, I agree with you. And David Bickerstaff even said yesterday, post game, talking about Donovan's 10 points, which is the lowest he's had since playing the Grizzlies last year in February. JB said that the averages say that if Donovan's been playing low the last couple of games, that he's due for an explosion. So I think we're just waiting on that. To follow up on that, you mentioned Darius Garland's return, and he's been the leading scorer for the Cavs in Donovan's absence. Do you think it helped at all for him to get his feet wet again after the injury with Donovan out of the lineup because he was getting to have more opportunities with the ball in his hand and getting opportunities at the basket without having to take less shots. We can sit there and we can talk about all this Darius Donovan thing and what does it look like when Darius is out there by himself and what does it look like when Donovan's out there by himself and does it look better in short bursts and blah, 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 blah. We can do that. That's fine. Other people are doing that. Fans are talking about the same thing. Here's the reality. If the Cavs are going to reach their goals, they need Darius and Donovan to be great together. Period. Point blank. And I think they have been great together. There's enough data to support that Darius can be a great player, an impactful player, and Donovan can be a great and impactful player while playing in the same backcourt with Darius Garland. There's enough room for both of them to thrive and the Cavs to thrive with both of them together. But... Is there a little bit of truth to the fact that when Donovan is out of the lineup, Darius has more freedom, the ball's in his hands more, the responsibility is with him, he's not playing off the ball as much? Does his usage go up? Sure. Like, all of those things are bound to happen 
when one of those guys is off the floor because Darius is a ball-dominant player and Donovan's a ball-dominant player too. And yeah, I think that makes Darius's production go up a little bit, just like Donovan Mitchell's production will go up because they feel like, Ethan, they have to do more for the offense and they react accordingly. And I think that's just a natural thing. But I don't think it speaks to this idea or this perceived notion that the Cavs are better with one of those two guys out. I just don't buy that. Well, the last question that I have for today's podcast has nothing to do with Donovan Mitchell or Darius Garland. It actually has to do with one of the longer tenured players on the Cavs, in Tristan Thompson. He had a major minutes impact against the Raptors and grabbed four offensive rebounds when he was in the game. What has he brought to this team when it comes to leadership on and off the court and energy? Well, he's brought a little bit more on the court than I think people may be giving him credit for, or maybe even people thought. And I was asking JB about this the other night. I was asking a couple of Tristan's new teammates about this and old teammates about this as well. And it's like, yeah, this is a guy who has won an NBA championship. This is a guy who's been a part of winning. This is a guy who knows what it looks like, knows how to get to points that some of these other players inside the organization don't know how or haven't been to. And all of that stuff matters. There's a professionalism. There's a knowledge. There's experience. There's hardships that he's been through that he's had to overcome. All of those different things are going to matter. And I think because of those things, Teammates are going to respect things that he has to say, the way that he conducts himself. But on the court, like this is a guy who has worked his way into very close to the every night rotation. He was the last player that they signed. It was more about behind the scenes stuff. It was more about leadership. It was more about showing the young guys the right way. But on the court, JB is finding ways to get him time because the Cavs need some of the things that he can bring. He can get them second chance opportunities on the offensive class. He still sets very, very good screens. He's still a threat rolling to the basket. He still provides toughness and defense. At the end of the game against Philadelphia, he guarded Embiid. The Cavs have Jared Allen. The Cavs have Evan Mobley. The Cavs have Dean Wade, guy who I talked about his defense. And it was Tristan Thompson who was guarding Joel Embiid on that final possession of that particular game. And he held his own, and he forced Embiid into a long pull-up jumper. So on the court, I don't think we can overlook some of the things that he has brought to the table. And behind the scenes, I think he's been invaluable. Him and Darius are connected at the hip. They go everywhere together. They leave games together. They leave shoot-arounds together. They leave practices together. Like, it's back the way that it was when Darius first came into the NBA and Tristan was taking him under his wing and being his big brother, basically. And that kind of player, having that kind of leadership and that kind of respected locker room guy that can say things that resonate with players in a different way than they would coming from a coach is very, very important for a team that is relatively quiet when it comes to that stuff. Tristan and Darius' mannerisms are kind of similar, too. Like, they're both kind of silly, goofy people sometimes. They can be. And the other thing is they can be very, very serious when they need to be. They can find that balance. And maybe some of the things that, that Tristan has seen throughout his career can help Darius find a better balance. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that he has to be different. It doesn't mean that his personality has to change. It just means that 
Tristan can show him the time and place when that's okay, when that's not okay, that kind of stuff. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to Subtext to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I. This will give you more insight than any of your other everyday social media platforms. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. With that, we'll catch you next time. Y'all be safe. We out.